seated. Thank you, music team. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again. At this time, I invite you to take God's word and turn to the truth of Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we will continue the exposition in the gospel according to Jesus, gospel according to Mark. Today we come to another significant event in the life of Jesus, which is his 40-day temptation. Though Mark's account is very brief compared to Luke's or Matthew's version, The narrative reveals some important details that are commonly overlooked. And so I trust that you will be extremely impacted by the exposition today. Let's begin by reading Mark 1, verses 12 to 13. Mark 1, verses 12 to 13, it says, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. The message today is entitled, The Significance of Christ's Temptation. Since the very beginning of creation, the scripture revealed that Christ would contend with the devil. We read in Genesis 3, Verse 15, what's known as the Proto-Euangelion, which is Greek for the first gospel. It says, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That verse is known as the first gospel because it's the first message of hope recorded in the Bible after the fall. Directly after mankind fell by their sin, God gave hope to mankind. Which is, from the very outset, proof that God is a God of grace and mercy. The He, in Genesis 3.15, is none other than the Lord Jesus. And the one being addressed is, as you know, Satan. Now, we know that ultimately Christ's finished work on the cross is what figuratively and spiritually, to put it a better way, crushed the serpent's head, right? But before that came to pass, Jesus had a spiritual duel with the devil, the serpent of old. Mark has two primary purposes in revealing this match between Jesus and Satan. The first is this. To demonstrate the resiliency of Jesus. He is unwavering in his mission. He will not be deterred from his goal to seek and to save that which was lost. He would not be defeated even by the prince of the power of the air. Who was an extremely powerful spiritual force. The second is to reveal that all who put their faith in Christ will in Christ share in his victory over the evil one. Every one of us here today is either a child of God or a child of Satan. One or the other. 
Those are the only two real families in existence today. If you have been born again, if you have put off the old man and put on the new man, if you have a deep love for God and his word, if you have an unquenchable thirst for spiritual things, if you know you are 100% committed to making disciples of Christ, And if you are a functioning member of the body, let me encourage you with this reminder. You are a child of God. And the Bible says that you have in your possession at this very moment all spiritual blessings. Not some. You already have all spiritual blessings in Christ And instead of spending eternity in hell away from the presence of Christ, by grace alone, you get to spend eternity in heaven in the presence of Christ. That's what it means to be a child of God. But on the contrary, if you have never been changed by the power of the gospel, if you have no genuine desire to study and feast upon the words of eternal life continually, if you have no lifelong commitment to edify the church with your gift, then I must say I love you enough to repeat simply what Jesus said. You are of your father the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. So if you have no doubt in your mind about what family you belong to this morning, you have reason to be encouraged or possibly fear. And if you're not sure, it indicates the former. And the response is to repent and believe the gospel. It's only through faith alone in Christ alone that you may share in this victory over Satan and be untouched by him and his influence. Now, as we look at verses 12 to 13, I want to draw your attention to three short but descriptive details in Mark's account of Jesus' time in the wilderness contending with Satan. Three details that I want to point out to you. First, in verse 12, Jesus' commission from the Spirit. Verse 12 starts out with immediately. And as I mentioned this a few weeks before... This word immediately is Mark's favorite adverb. It occurs ten times in chapter one alone. And it's again noteworthy to highlight that because it really speaks to Mark's condensed, fast-paced writing style. Mark is a big picture thinker, whereas Paul gets down to the weeds, doesn't he? You, you read his, his, uh, his epistles, especially the last sentence in Romans, which I just read or attempted to read. It's very long. Mark is not like that. He, he's a big picture thinker. He wants to get to the point. He must have been a military man. Get to the point. What's the bluff, the bottom line up front? That's what Mark does when he uses this word. For instance, Mark leaves out the account of Jesus' birth. He, he leaves that to Matthew and Luke. And he begins his gospel right away, focusing on the attention of John the Baptist. But he does not even linger there for long, does he? 
he moves quickly to the next scene where we find the devil throwing everything he has, the Son of God, to get him to fail at the very outset of his mission to save sinners. Whereas Matthew and Luke provide a detailed account of Jesus' temptation, Mark's brief record is stated in two verses, but the main points are still there. He goes on to say that immediately the Spirit impelled him. Notice who is the force behind Jesus being thrusted into the desert immediately after his baptism. It is the Holy Spirit, the third member of our triune God. Implication is this. It was God's will for Jesus to begin suffering without delay after his public appearing. Now remember, as we go through this verse by verse, the main theme of Mark's gospel is to present Jesus as the suffering servant. So just like I've said, Mark gets to that point very quick. Jesus begins suffering right after he is revealed to the public. And so think about this. If God the Spirit impelled Jesus to go toe-to-toe with misery and loneliness before he did anything, before he preached one sermon, before he healed one sick man, before he fed one hungry person, the very first thing that God willed him to do was to go out and to suffer. So if that's true, something to think about this morning, why should we ever stoop to think that God would not impel us to suffer? Will you allow me to shepherd your soul right now? Just like the suffering that Jesus went through right away had a purpose, so does your suffering. Your suffering does not come into life by happenstance. Have you ever read 1 Peter 4, verse 12? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. So, don't buy the mainstream evangelical lie that God is love. So, that means he wants you to be free from pain and struggle and to have high self-esteem. That's a lie. The truth is that God is love. And he wants you to pick up your cross. He wants you to share in his sufferings like a good soldier. He wants you to serve. He wants you to obey. He wants you to worship him from a regenerate heart. So keep in mind that although some affliction, light or heavy, is simply the result of living in a fallen world, what you view as your most intense season of life or season of suffering, is not outside the divine will. And friends, if you struggle with that truth, then you do not really believe in the sovereignty of God. Or perhaps you just might not understand it. 
God in his perfect wisdom chose not to completely save us from the effects of sin. And he chooses to use trials in our life to test us. Just like he sent, impelled Jesus, the perfect man, into the wilderness to be tested. Now look at that word again, impelled. It's the Greek word ekbalo. It's a forceful word that means to drive out, to cast out, or to throw out. So picture like a slingshot, right? You pull it back, and that rock is thrusted forcefully to whatever direction you're aiming it. That's kind of what the Holy Spirit was doing with Jesus. He uses the same word in uh, chapter 16 to refer to driving out a demon. We understand that when a demon possessed a man, it had total control of him, didn't it? In the same way, Mark here in this passage underscores the reality that the Spirit was in control. Perfectly leading Jesus, compelling him, throwing him out to fulfill the elements of God's plan. Mark does not reveal why the Holy Spirit impelled him to go into wilderness, but Matthew 4, verse 1 does. It says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. To be tempted. God the Father willed it for Jesus to be tempted. That was part of his plan. It was part of his plan for his monogenes, only begotten, which is really a bad translation. Monogenes is one of a kind, only unique son. It was God's will for him to be tempted not once, not twice, not for an hour, not for two hours, not for a week, not for two weeks. Forty days straight. Now, that leads us to the second descriptive detail Mark includes to show us the significance of this temptation. Look at verse 13. Here we see Jesus' contention with the devil. His contention with the devil. It goes, And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, as I've already discussed, here we see how Jesus' circumstances directly, dramatically, and abruptly changed. In a very short period of time, he had gone from being the center of attention and a massive crowd, standing in the Jordan River, being supernaturally validated by the, by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. He goes from that to being in utter seclusion and solitude. Now, the setting for this seclusion and solitude was in the wilderness. Now, what do I always try to teach you about interpreting the Bible? You are to be exegetes, right? You are to place yourself in the shoes of the biblical recipients. So when you see wilderness, don't think Pacific Northwest wilderness. Don't even think Alaska wilderness. How many of you have been to the Middle East? Quite different, right? I'll never forget the first time. I stepped out of my tent in Kuwait in the daylight. The wind was not like a light, warm breeze like we experienced yesterday and will today. It's nothing. Right? You walk out and it's literally like a massive 
blow dryer just forcing you to go on your back. I literally had to walk into the wind, and it was very hot. That's where Jesus was in that kind of condition. It was a place of desolation. It was a place where he was surrounded by all kinds of dangers. He was forcefully removed from people and provision and compelled to contend with a severe supernatural assault from hell. Can you imagine? Try to imagine yourself being in Jesus' shoes here. Imagine being baptized by a prophet. Forget some small town pastor doing it, right? And there's hundreds of people here to see your baptism. You hear the voice of God, speak your name. You experience the overwhelming empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then straight away, almost like within a blink of an eye, you find yourself alone with no food, no water, no companion, no air conditioning, in the vast, dusty desert. And that's not even the worst part. The Judean wilderness, it's barren. It stretches roughly 35 miles long and 15 miles wide. It's broken up by rocky peaks, jagged cliffs, and deep ravines. And what's even more interested is what this one commentator pointed out. The first Adam, quote, tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden, was a lush paradise where everything was good. The last Adam succumbed to sinful temptation despite being innocent and dwelling in a perfect environment. The second Adam, who was Jesus, perfectly holy, faced the devil in the middle of a dreadful wasteland. A place utterly unlike Eden. It was there in the parched heat of the barren desert that Jesus found himself alone and weakened by fasting, accompanied by serpents and scorpions. Now this thing, brothers and sisters, this is one thing that the Lord Jesus did for you. He was subjected to this kind of thirsty, starving, lonely life so that he could be tempted and serve as our high priest. Who, as the Hebrews say, the writer of Hebrews says, who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. See, this, temp- this period of temptation was part of the plan for Jesus to, be, to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be tempted so that he could win And this was all within God's plan and will. This was necessary for Jesus to be tempted. Now, the Greek word for tempted is really uh, a moral neutral term. And it could also be translated as tested. Recall when I quoted 1 Peter 4, verse 12, which talks about your trials being intended for your testing? It's the same word used in the Gospels to speak of the devil tempting Jesus. So tempting and testing comes from the same Greek word. 
It can either be used to speak of good or evil, depending on, listen, depending on the intention of the one devising the test or temptation. A test, in a good sense, is to ascertain the character of a person. To test, in a bad sense, is to solicit sin. So again, the context dictates meaning here. In the context of Mark, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, who is doing the periosmos? The tempting or testing. Who is it? It's Satan. Now let me ask you this question. Just so we're on the same page. Who is Satan? How would you define him? Biblically. That's an important question because... There have been varying views and opinions about who Satan is that range from a depiction of a horrific beast, goat-like creature. And there have been depictions of the devil where he is a childish cartoon, right? So let me clarify what Satan is not or who he is not. Satan is not some silly little red guy with horns. A pointed tail and a pitchfork who sits on your shoulder urging you to sin. That's not Satan. Do not get your theology of the devil from Looney Tunes. Satan is also not some kind of abstract idea that liberals say. Some idea that they say is just an expression of the personification of evil. That's false. I should also point out thirdly that Hollywood and Other quote-unquote artists have definitely taken too much liberty in depicting Satan as some kind of ferocious, grotesque, sharp-toothed, magical creature. That's also false. He's no chubby cartoon. He's no theoretical concept. He's no ferocious monster. And so since we are a Bible church, aren't we? What questions should you be asking yourself when I ask who is Satan you should say well the Bible says here's who Satan is so I'm going to help you out here Isaiah 14 verse 12 Isaiah 14 verse 12 reveals that Satan was a created holy angel but he wasn't just any kind of angel Ezekiel 28 verses 12 to 14 goes on to describe Satan as having been created as a cherubim, a cherub, excuse me, cherub, which is the highest ranking created angel. He was dressed in fine stones. It was beautiful. He's the most beautiful angel that God ever made. That's who he was before the fall. So what about him as the post, as the fallen angel. Well, the only clear indication from Scripture is that he disguises himself as an angel of light. So therefore, if we're going to be biblical, we must say, if he were to take an appearance in physical form, he would put on a masquerade. This is where it's important for you to listen If Satan were to appear today, he would appear as a phony, so as to deceive you. 
He would appear today as a light for people. He would appear as someone who is going to look desirable and he is going to look like someone that you're going to want to follow. That's why he is the deceiver. He is the ultimate enemy. And so we've gleaned from the Bible that the origin, we've, we've gleaned from the scripture what the origin and the appearance of Satan is. But it doesn't answer the question, who is he? Who is he really? Well, we get that simply from understanding the Greek word Satan, which is just a transliteration. It means adversary. It means one who opposes. Another one of his titles is Diabolos, which is devil. Which means accuser or false accuser or slanderer. And so the meaning of his names clearly define his identity. He exists to oppose. He exists to accuse and tempt both believers and unbelievers, as well as God himself, as we see here in Mark 1. Now, because Satan is the one doing the testing in this instance, it is rightly translated as tempt. How did Satan tempt Jesus? We have to ask that question, don't we? Because Mark doesn't say. Mark doesn't say, so... We lean on Matthew and Luke for this information. Matthew 4, verses 3 to 10. You can turn there if you want to. Matthew 4, verses 3 to 10, tells us how Satan tempted Jesus. Matthew 4, and I'll begin in verse 3. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels according he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone Jesus said to him on the other hand it is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test again the devil took him into a high mountain a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and he said to him all these things i will give you If you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. Now, I don't have time to expose this whole passage right now, but I do want to want to extract one key observation that we can all learn from right now. The stakes could have never been higher because Jesus knew it was his royal duty to crush the serpent's head, right? The proto-euangelion. He knew that he was going to destroy the works of the devil. He knew these things. But listen, notice how he fought each temptation. 
he fought the devil the same way you should. With scripture. Keep in mind that he was physically weak, emotionally drained, and completely isolated. Yet, he did not shrink, to put it in Paul's vernacular, from declaring the word of God as his weapon. You all know that Jesus, with one word, could have crushed Satan right there. You know that Jesus had the authority and the ability and the power to say, go away. But he allowed Satan to keep tempting him. And each time, four times to be exact, Jesus said, it is written. It is written. It is written. For it is written. And so, Christians, this is how you must fight your spiritual battles. This is how you must fight your temptations. With Scripture. And if you're going to fight temptations like Jesus did, then you have to know Scripture, right? Now, as a side note, I must reiterate something. I must repeat this. I preached through James a couple years ago. But for those of you who weren't here, James sheds a little bit of light on this tension between testing and tempting. And and I dealt with that when I went through James. But I have to reiterate that it is not God who is the tempter, right? He is the tester. James 1.13 is clear that God cannot tempt anyone. It says, let no one... Say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. So it's plainly revealed that God is not the source of temptation for anyone. Period. However, he is the source of testing, but not tempting. God compelled his son to be tested so that he might demonstrate his power and authority over the devil. So understand that this entire event, this entire 40 days of intense testing came by the will of God so that the son may be authenticated. The implication is this. If we consider, again, that God does not tempt, but he tests. And we consider that the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go out to the wilderness to contend with the devil. If Jesus had to be authenticated and tempted, so do you. So do you. If you identify as a Christian, you must be tried. Because you do not want to end up like the rich man in Luke 16, who thought he was a believer. How we respond and grow from our tests and trials 
indicates whether or not your faith is genuine or counterfeit. And so I challenge you today to consider your view of trials. Instead of always becoming full of self-pity, consider the likelihood that God in His sovereignty is testing you. Just like He tested His own sinless Son. Now let's move on to the third descriptive detail here. Lastly, I want to show you Jesus' isolation and confirmation in the desert. His isolation and confirmation in the desert. The second half of verse 13. Mark includes this seemingly strange detail. That he was with the wild beasts. Now this small detail here is simply here to emphasize the reality that Jesus was completely isolated from human from human care. These wild beasts were untamed wild animals that were that could have included foxes and leopards and pigs and jackals and snakes and scorpions. And so Mark is saying here that you know when all you could see are carnivorous predatory animals, you are far removed from the safety of human civilization. Now keep in mind this was a time before firearms. This 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 was a time before pepper spray. He had no defense. He had on his person no weapon and he had no way to defend himself against deadly animals. And I just touch on this a little bit because I think it's hard for us to imagine what that would feel like. Even us who like to go camping once in a while, man, after a couple of days we're ready to get back to our hot shower, right? When when I was in the army, uh, they killed my love for camping, I'll admit it, because they forced me to sleep out in the snow. So, we, we, we Americans, we, we, we love, we're so used to our comforts. And so, so think, I, I think it'd be safe to say that for most of us, there might be an exception in this group, but I think for the most part, we really have no clue what it's like to be in the position Jesus was, which only makes it even more awesome that he was able to withstand the temptations of the devil. And so Mark concludes with one last small detail, but it's significant. Mark said that the angels were ministering to him. This statement implies that Jesus triumphed. He triumphed over the temptation that Satan brought. And he emerged victorious from his long isolation. The word ministering here, it comes from the, uh, the same Greek where we get deacon. It means to serve. The angels were serving Jesus. And this indicates that the angels provided him with provision. It marks the end of the 40-day fast in the Judean desert. But what's more important to understand here is Not only did these angels help nurse him back to health, so to speak, their presence served as a a confirmation that the Father who sent him to suffer 
was still pleased with his son. The angels are the father's servants. The angels exist to be dispatched to do what God wants them to do. In this case, God the Father sent his angels to help Jesus and to confirm that the Father was still with him. Jesus had won. It was over. And from this point on, Jesus' subsequent life and ministry proved that his divine identity was true. Beyond argument. There was no possible way anyone could ever assert that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. Because if you understand the condition he was in here, if you understand who he was tempted by, if you understand how long he was tempted for and where he was tempted, and listen to this, if you understand just how evil and sick the human heart is naturally, then that should cause us to respond with awestruck worship and gratitude towards Jesus. Why? Because if you or I would have been in Jesus' shoes, you and I would have failed. You know it's true. You and I would have eventually given up under the extreme Stress and discomfort and agony of being alone in the desert. Of being hungry. Of being thirsty. Surrounded by wild beasts. Some of you might be saying, well, speak for yourself, buddy. I could do it. Well, let me go further. Sure, you might last 5, 10, 30, or even 35 days. But you know, in your heart of hearts, that on day 30, if you made it that far, on the brink of death because of your starvation and thirst, if Satan himself took you to the highest mountaintop, it said it'll all be yours. It'll all end if you just bow it, bow your knee. You would do it. But Jesus didn't. He withstood. He did not succumb and he won. And right now, you must respond at this very second. Praise God. Praise God that he won by not falling to temptation. Because if he did, here's why this is significant. There would be no gospel. There would be no hope. And there would be no salvation. But since he did defeat the adversary in his humanity, Christ could go to the cross He could be your advocate. He became your high priest. And he qualified himself to remain the predestined Lamb of God. Blameless, spotless, perfect, ready and willing to give his life for you. That's the significance 
Christ's temptation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to dig into your word. I thank you that Christ prevailed. In such a weakened condition, he did not succumb to the devil. He, he defeated him in the wilderness. And 